So today uh, we are continuing in our series, The Community of the Gospelized, which is a series on this thing called the church. Jesus looks at his disciples, right? He looks them in the eyes and he asks them who they say that he is. See, he asks them to confess. He asks them to make a personal statement about this guy that they've been following. He's like, you know, you guys, um, you've been following me for a while now. Who do you think that you've been following? That's an interesting note, by the way. Maybe it's possible for a person to follow Jesus for years without ever actually doing the business of their own confession of faith. I wonder if it's too pointed, especially this early in the sermon, to ask whether you're actually following Jesus or are you merely following a crowd. Questions like this can help us do business with this idea that our faith is to match our actions and our actions are to match our faith. James puts it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith but you do not have works? Can, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, well, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, yet you do not actually supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, James says, is dead. This is an important word for those of us in the evangelical world to, uh, to hear because our first reaction to James asking, can faith save you, might just be, probably should be, of course, of course faith can save me. I'm, I'm justified by faith alone. Well, James would ask, faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in Jesus? Because if so, then that's going to look like something. I know for me, I I believe in the foundational principle of Christianity that Jesus' love for me is based on his character, not mine. When I say that I am justified by faith, that's a shorthand for saying that I am saved by the grace of God the Father who has sent his son Jesus to die a sacrificial death in order that I might have eternal life with him and be sanctified by his Holy Spirit. See, from that position, I follow the King. I follow Jesus Christ who calls me to follow him into a life of faith based on his righteousness, that righteousness that I long for, not my own righteousness, the righteousness that never was anything special. The thing is, that faith, though, it's going to look like something. We're called for it to look like something. And it also means that the faith traditions and the faith community, the church, is going to look like something. So Paul does an incredible job laying out some thoughts on what the the faith of a Jesus community will look like in Ephesians 4. Uh, If you want, you can turn uh, 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 in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. You can also, I guess, flip to it on your phones. Um, Ephesians is a letter, and it is a remarkable piece of theology. 
It is the kind of book, by the way, if you're ever going to memorize uh, like an entirety of one of Paul's letters, like I, I remember N.T. Wright once saying, like, you, you should actually consider memorizing Ephesians. It, 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 there are worse things to try, even if you don't quite make it to make, you know, memorizing the entire thing. There are far worse things you could be doing with your time. It's the kind of letter that you just want deep in your soul. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that in Christ, it is God's plan to gather up all things, right? In verse 10, to lay claim over this creation of his that has been infected by sin, offering through Jesus's blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then in chapter 2, he does this awesome thing that is like one of my favorite things in the Bible. He tells them that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith so that no one may boast. He makes a special point of telling them that, that their salvation, being made alive in Christ, it's not a result of their works. It was never about you being good enough for God's love. It was always about how much God loves his people, how much he wants to redeem them and reclaim them for himself. But, but then... But then Paul makes this genius move at the end of chapter 2. He strikes out from that very place of emphasis of grace, and he tells them this, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Do you see what he did there? I mean, I get really worked up about this. It might just be me, but he is saying you weren't saved by your works, but you sure were saved for them. There is work that God has prepared for you since the beginning of time, a role that he wanted you to play that only you could play. And he knows that sin is only going to get in the way of you being you. So he had to demolish it along with death itself on the cross. And he offers you this new life following him in faith. And he doesn't want you to do it alone, see. In fact, there is work to be done. There's a great commission to live out that calls us to take this gospel message, to take this good news to the ends of the earth. And when we're doing that, when we're doing this, we're being the church. Because Paul adds in chapter 3 that, for though the church, that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might be known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. That's a mysterious phrase. We don't have time to, to dig into that now. But, but it would appear that there is something about the work that God is doing in us, the work that God is doing in his church that will echo to the ends of the earth and beyond. So here, in chapter 4, uh, we could have chapter 4 on the thing. So here, in chapter 4, Paul moves, in a sense, from the theological to the practical. And he says the following. He says, I, therefore, now, remember last week we learned that anytime you see a therefore, you got to ask what is therefore. So that's why I spent the little last couple of minutes talking about the first three chapters of Ephesians. You get, you have that. I, therefore, 
a prisoner in the Lord. Now that's interesting because Paul himself was a, a prisoner. So it's kind of like he's got to play on words there. He says, well, you think I'm imprisoned by men. I'm actually a prisoner in the Lord. I beg you, beg you, beg is an interesting word there. I beg you. I don't just ask you. I don't just command you. I beg you. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. I love humility. I love that there's a call to humility in our holy text. My favorite definition of humility is it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility and and gentleness, not weakness, not uh, feebleness, but gentleness, um, bringing calm, bringing a reserved strength, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So now you might see why I started the sermon with a discussion of faith and works. See, Paul's not saying here that you need to be worthy in order to earn your place in the Lord's community. He's not saying that it's only through following these rules of humility and gentleness and patience that you would be worthy enough to to be in his church. No, he's saying that in light of the truth of the grace of God who has poured out his love upon you, it would only make sense that you would respond with being humility, with being uh, humble, that you would only, uh, it would only make sense for you to respond with that kind of reserved strength of gentleness. It would only make sense that you would respond in patience when other people act in ways that upset you. Patience with others who know, who you know, are wrestling with sin of their own. There's been a lot of talk these days about the Enneagram. Any Enneagram fans in the room? A couple people. Uh, Some of you might be thinking, well, what's that? Basically, it is a personality test that categorizes individuals into nine types in order to give you a bit more information on yourself. And as with any of these tests, they need to be taken with a grain of salt um, as the start of a conversation, not certainly not the end of one. Uh, still, they can be helpful. In the first eight of these types, so I, I take this test, and the first eight of these types, they could tell you maybe you are um, prone to be a perfectionist, or maybe you, you are a helper, or maybe you're an achiever, or maybe you're an individualist, and maybe you're an investigator, or perhaps you're intensely loyal. Maybe it points towards your enthusiasm, or maybe you're the kind of person that likes to challenge systems. So those are like the eight, eight of the first categories, and I took the test, and all of those sounded pretty good to me, but I didn't come up with any of those. No, I came up as the ninth type, the peacemaker. And I'm told that nines, this is what from the the Enneagram website, it says nines are accepting, trusting, and stable. They are usually creative, optimistic, and supportive, but they can also be too willing to go along with others to keep the peace. They want everything to go smoothly and be without conflict but they can also tend to be too complacent, simplifying problems and minimizing anything upsetting. They typically have problems with inertia, 
and stubbornness. Yeah, I guess that's me. I can tell you this, though. When I read Paul's words here in Ephesians, I get stirred a bit. I think like, okay, now we're cooking. Humility, gentleness, patience, patience, bearing with one another in love, giving others the benefit of the doubt, always looking for a way to cool situations down and find common ground. You know, I make no claims on what type Paul might be, and I think that if you're of a different personality, you're probably going to find other passages in Paul, more to your liking, but yeah, I love this. I read verses like this, and it's like someone handed me a cool drink of water on a hot day. In a time such as this, when our church, not just New Hope, but the the church worldwide, is so divided, bleeding from the way that we have attacked one another, I see an encouragement towards humility and gentleness, um, a spirit of patience, uh, patient love rather than cutting attack, Yeah, I see that as very comforting. I want to look at these verses to bring some clarity in the midst of a week like this past one, which is, to say the least for me personally, tested the patience. Well, not just of me, but of many of us. And you think, how do you respond? Is it it by jabbing facts and the cleverest wit? Is it through making jokes of of serious things, or do we figure that we can be as insulting as possible as long as we're launching from the right camp? Reading these verses made me wonder, what if we, before we ever posted anything on social media, read this verse out loud? Sure, it's good to have conversations, and we will inevitably disagree on good things, and it's good to disagree. But before you make that comment, can you honestly say that you are making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Or are you just hoping that the fact that you might be right will cover your losses? Paul is building an argument for the unity of the body of Christ because our task as a church, as the church, is so unbelievably, radically, revolutionarily precious. As Christ is reconciling the world to himself, he has called us to be the reconciled community, ambassadors of his redemptive love to a world that is absolutely starving for it. What what Paul is painting here is a need for us to be a community so rooted in love for each other that folks can't help but ask, who's in charge here? And when that happens, please don't say Joe Miller. Say our Lord Jesus, who is alive and who is building his kingdom in our midst. Paul continues and says this. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Tell us what you really think, Paul. From very early on, though, in the life of Christ's church, we have found it necessary to put up walls. I was uh, was raised Methodist, 
sort of. The, the, the primary reason we went to church, the, went to the church that we did, was because it hosted my Cub Scout pack meetings. Um, I was in the bell choir, and then I was also in the vocal choir. But, but if I remembered correctly, we only went to service when, uh, whenever we had some sort of responsibility. And if I'm remembering correctly, uh, when I was young, um, I don't remember knowing anyone in the church other than the musical director. And we left. We left that church when I was in middle school, and we started attending Grace Fellowship Church at Timonium. And that, honestly, if I'm being honest about my walk with Christ, that is where God made himself known to me. We went from fighting with our mom on Sunday mornings about having to go to this boring church to being dressed and ready to go without ever having to be asked. It was a contemporary church with loud contemporary music and drums and saxophone. (laughs) Man, the saxophone player was so cool. And as a middle school student, I just loved every minute of it. I have this distinct memory of looking around at this place and thinking to myself, whatever it is these people have, I don't know what it is, but I want it. It didn't take long for me to find out that that wasn't a what, it was a who. But then one day, we get a call from that Methodist church. And I'm a junior. Joseph Robert Miller Jr. My parents were going through a divorce at the time, so when we got a, we get phone calls asking for Joe Miller, I usually said, "That's me." Um, it was a way of screening calls from my mom. Um, the woman on the line asked if we were planning on being a part of an upcoming church function, and I, oh, I responded, "Our family has found a new church." She asked me which one, and, I, and asked me why, and I told her best I could, and to be honest with you, I think I do remember being respectful about it, but when I hung up the phone, I remember hurting. Again, I'm a peacemaker, and I was a peacemaker then, and I hate the thought of hurting someone else's feelings, sometimes even with the truth. That's something I've needed to do heavy work on to be a preacher. That conversation was formative for me. I felt God saying, don't just go about your business. Think about what just happened here. I wasn't telling someone that our family had found a better long-distance provider. You see, kids, there used to be long-distance providers. Anyway, I told them that we found a different church. So the question I had to ask answer for me when I hung up the phone was did we did did we actually find a different church no of course we didn't if God is really real you know and this is my 13 year old brain telling me you know talking to me if God is really real then he is as much God there as he is God here we didn't find a different church we may have started paying attention to a different part of the church but there was only ever one church I think there were good reasons why Grace Fellowship Church made sense to my family in 1994, but it would have been very easy for me to internalize the effectiveness of their ministry as some sort of pride on my behalf. Oh, we found a better church. To the point where 
a woman would call from a Methodist church and I would take some kind of joy in telling her, well, I found something better. I found God's hand strongly holding me back from that as I do now. I take great joy in the fact that New Hope has had a history of what we call ecumenism, doing things that help break down denominational barriers and act as though we are only a local manifestation of Christ's one church. While we may be non-denominational, that doesn't mean that we have to be anti-denominational. We look for ways of building fellowship with other areas of the faith. For a decade, we met in a historic Methodist church, and for almost three years now, we've met in this beautiful, historic Episcopal church. I've received seminary education from an ecumenical university, one that intentionally structured classes so that individuals from various Christian faith traditions could study together, could learn from one another, could talk about each other's faith traditions in a safe place. I'll say some of my favorite classmates were Catholic seminarians. These guys were theological heavyweights, and I could tell that they, they, it, was, it was so fun. They, they already cared. They already genuinely cared about the parishes that they would be sent to after finishing their education. And did I find myself disagreeing with them on certain topics? I sure did. I remember getting into some rather heated discussions around topics of communion, and the authority of the Pope. But we were able to do that because of the truth that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one baptism, one Lord. You see, here's the thing. Paul says unity was never about sameness. There is unity in diversity. He goes on. He says, but each of us were given grace According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself captive. He gave gifts to his people. Now, when it says he ascended, what does it mean uh, but that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all things so that he might fill all things. See, these gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. As a pastor, that's one of my favorite lines of the Bible. For building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. You see, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's treachery, treachery, trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Him. Think about that, growing into Christ, who is the head, into Christ from who the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So maybe we sit down and we do something like the Enneagram, 
or the Myers-Briggs, or maybe we do a spiritual gifts inventory. All of these things can be, they can be decent tools to help us begin a conversation about, about how God is calling us to invest in his kingdom. But what do we see here? I think first we see that Paul is very interested in Christ being in the driver's seat. It was and is Jesus who was holding, who is holding this whole thing together. And when I say this whole thing, I mean everything. There is nothing that is beyond God's grasp. He is above all and through all and in all. It's his church. It's his planet. It's his galaxy. And it always was. So we ask, so we think about what role could we possibly play in all that? And first and foremost, we have to ask, am I following his lead or am I getting in his way with my own agenda? Second, Paul's words here function um, in regards to the function of church leaders is especially powerful to me. I don't think it this list necessarily is exhaustive, but I do think that it points to the truth that all church leadership exists for building up the body of Christ. Church leadership exists to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So when someone comes into this church and asks, who is the minister? We're all ministers because we're all called to ministry. I, I may be the equipper, I may be a teacher, I may be a shepherd, I may, be even, I may even be a leader. But don't for a moment think that my job is anything less than to give ministry back to every one of you. Nothing would give me greater pleasure than to sit down with you, one-on-one, -on -one, talk through your own personal gifting and how you might serve God's kingdom Everybody would be different, but my guess that this conversation would include some discussion of your personality, um, your prayer life, your, your job, your role in your family, and yeah, your duties in the church. I'd want to ask, how are you um, being you in the areas where you have influence? How can I help? Seriously, if you've never talked with a pastor about those things, I'd encourage you to reach out to me or to another leader. This is why we have house churches. This is why we have elders. This is why we have other people that, that come up and, and lead things on Sunday mornings other than me because we want to be a community of multiple leaders, of multiple teachers that you know that you can come to these people, that you can trust them. Paul says that our job is to speak truth to one another until all of us come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. That seems an impossible task. And that's our third point here to close. Because the truth is that all, where all of this is headed is maturity. It is to Jesus being on the throne and each of us acting like he really is on the throne. Not just interjecting our own personal agenda, not just looking for the way we could be right, not looking for the way we can be cutting, but actually following his lead into a bond of peace, into a bond of unity, into a bond of worship. Let me pray.
Father, these things do seem impossible. The idea that we could see the division of our church, the division of our world, the different opinions and passions that exist, and somehow fight for unity, somehow fight for oneness, somehow think that we could play our role in a way that is actually going to benefit your kingdom. And Father, we just give it all to you. We lay it at the foot of your cross knowing that the first thing that we must do is just sacrifice, just surrender all to you. And Father, we are so thankful that when we do that, your response is your sacrificial love. The way that you have died on the cross and uh, welcomed us into new life and new creation through your resurrection. Father, I just ask that each and every person in this room do fresh business with that reality today, right now. What does the cross mean in our reality? What does the cross mean to our life? What does the resurrection mean? What are you calling us today to be and to do? What does it mean for our community? What does it mean for our relationships and our families and our house churches and our work environment that we're called to oneness and called to a unity of faith and a bond of peace? I ask all of these things in the most holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.